How many of you are familiar with the uh, 1960s entertainment musical, The Music Man? Raise your hand. Oh, wow. We even have a hoop out for it this morning. Okay. The Music Man. In that particular musical, con man Harold Hill pretends to be a professor of music and he manufactures a crisis in a small Iowan town. And he manufactures that crisis so that, of course, the townspeople will buy what he's selling, in this case, musical instruments. And he manufactures that crisis by the only way you can do that in a musical, of course, by singing a song. And the song he sings goes something like this. Trouble... Oh, we got trouble right here in River City. We've got trouble. Now, it doesn't take a manufactured crisis of a 1960s entertainment musical to agree with the sentiment of that song. Trouble. We've surely got trouble. And our children's children going to have trouble, 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 trouble. I wonder what trouble you have been facing this week. I wonder if it's financial trouble. Inflation keeps growing. Your paycheck seems to shrink. It's barely covering the bills. And you're wondering how the grocery charges are going to be covered. Maybe it's relational trouble. The stress on your marriage right now is making you feel like a rubber band that's being stretched too far and is about to snap. Or perhaps it's your parents or your children that are causing no end of anxiety and stress. Perhaps it's the frustration of being single when you desire to be in a relationship. Maybe it's spiritual trouble you've faced this week. You just can't seem to stop looking at what you know you oughtn't to be looking at. Or maybe it's questions for you about the nature of reality in this world. What is truth and why am I here? Or maybe your trouble is a battle with same-sex attraction or some other temptation that has just reared its head over and over and over again. Or maybe for you it's trouble with your boss or with a neighbor or with your company or perhaps with a fellow member of Sojourn. Why is there trouble? And whom do we trust when we are troubled. And where is God in our trouble? These are questions that Psalm 9 and 10 asks and answers. Now this is one poem that spread across two different psalms. You see, David, as he observes life, is moved to write a poem by the Spirit of God that's all about the pervasive, pervasive nature of trouble and affliction in life. And as he thinks about the reality of trouble, it's so pervasive, in fact, 
that only a particular type of poem, a poem organized as an alphabetical acrostic, will completely summarize its A to Z nature. Each stanza of Psalms 9 and 10 begins with the next successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. But the more he writes, the more he's convinced that a perfect alphabetical acrostic, like Psalm 119, for instance, wouldn't accurately cover the reality of trouble. So his perfect acrostic poem is broken. It's interrupted. It's disrupted by trouble sticking its nose in. Because while life will sometimes look as orderly as the alphabet, it is often disrupted by trouble. At some point later in history, the poem was divided in half and the acrostic broken even further, and that's how we come to have two different psalms from one poem. And that's why we're going to look at these two psalms together this morning in their original condition, one alphabetical acrostic poem intentionally disrupted to communicate the nature of trouble. Now, typically, we would walk through a psalm stanza by stanza because psalms tell a story. But with an alphabetical acrostic like this, the truth is found in its completed form, not in a progression from stanza to stanza. So, this morning, here's where we're going to go. Five truths about trouble for the troubled. Five truths about trouble for the troubled. Number one, truth number one, there is no shortage of trouble. Now, this is pretty basic, pretty simple even, but it's something we would do well to remind ourselves of. And even as you heard Jeff read Psalm 9 and 10 earlier, there's trouble everywhere in these psalms. Trouble may take many different forms. And as David observes the, lives, observes the lives of the godly around him, he sees them afflicted, oppressed, humiliated, attacked, helpless, fatherless. They are crying out. They seem forgotten. They appear to perish. They're pursued by the wicked. They're seized by the wicked. They're devoured. They're crushed. They're sinking down. They're falling. They have unmet desires they have weak hearts, and they need justice. In short, David sees this so clearly. For the godly, there is no shortage of trouble. Trouble, trouble everywhere. But this should not surprise us if we are readers of the whole of Scripture, right? There's no shortage of trouble, and that's been true since the beginning. Think about the fact that Abel had trouble with the jealousy of his brother Cain. Noah had trouble with a worldwide flood, and then a disrespectful son who shamed him. Abraham saw trouble with five kings who kidnapped his nephew. Isaac saw trouble with a tribe who stole several of the wells he had dug, and he had trouble from a scheming son. Jacob, that scheming son, saw trouble with a brother he had duped and a tricksy father-in-law. 
and literally marrying the wrong woman, woman. And in his multiple wives, then fighting among themselves for his affection. Joseph was trafficked by his brothers into slavery. He was then unjustly accused of sexual harassment. He was unjustly imprisoned for those accusations. And then he was forgotten by the one man who'd, who would have been able to free him from that jail cell. And time would fail to tell us or tell for us to tell about David and Jeremiah and Josiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and the many faithful followers of God recorded specifically in the Old Testament who have experienced trouble. So what does that mean for you and me? Well, if you're a follower of God, it means this. If you're experiencing trouble this morning, then you are following a well-worn path. You follow in the footsteps of many who came before you. Because ever since the seed of the serpent went to war against the seed of the woman, those who would follow God will follow the trail of trouble. Perhaps you've noticed as you've driven around the Chattanooga area some of these signs at various locations in the city. It's a sign of the Trail of Tears. The Trail of Tears is actually not just one trail, but a series of routes that extend from Tennessee and Georgia and Alabama and North Carolina and go all the way west to Oklahoma, what used to be known as Indian Territory. In the 1830s, 16,000 members of the Cherokee Nation were forcibly and often violently marched across this country so that some of our ancestors could enjoy the land that those Cherokee Indians once settled on. And this was all due to a duplicitous treaty process. And the effect of this injustice lives on among the Cherokee Nation out in Oklahoma and some of their descendants even in our region and at that time, over a thousand of the 16,000 Cherokee Indians died on the Trail of Tears. And countless hundreds others would die in subsequent months. See, the Trail of Tears in our city is a reminder of the injustices and trouble that mankind can create among our own. And truth be told, you have undoubtedly walked or will walk your own version of the trail of tears in our broken world. And whoever tries to tell you that faith in God is the way to health and wealth and comfort and ease, they have not studied their Bible in its context. The Christian life is one of trouble because truth number one, there's no shortage of trouble. And the reason for that is truth number two. There is no shortage of troublers, those who cause trouble. Now, David classifies the troublers in two different ways in Psalm 9 and 10. He first references the nations generally and then specifically the wicked. 
First, there are the nations. These are the surrounding nations to David's empire, David's kingdom, that refuse to see in David the sovereign whom God had anointed. Now we know from Psalm 9, 9, 19, and 20 that these nations present themselves arrogantly. Now, as individuals organize themselves in rebellion against God, the larger that organization becomes, the more arrogant and proud and reckless they may become. And when in rebellion against God, nations can cause no end of trouble for men and women made in God's image, but also for followers of God. And the moral insanity of our own nation, or China, or Iran, or countless other nations we could list right now, North Korea, the moral insanity of these nations are testaments to the pride of nations in rebellion against God and the trouble they can create. The nations are troublers, but second, David sees wicked men and women as troublers as well. Our translation calls them the wicked. We could also call them the faithless ones. So let's focus our attention on verses 2 through 11 of Psalm 10 again as we see a description of the wicked. Verse 2, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face... The wicked does not seek him, the Lord. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten He has hidden his face. He will never see it. The statements of the faithless ones reveal both blasphemy and belligerence. They don't believe God exists, or if he does exist, he doesn't see their rebellion. That's blasphemy. And they believe that they are unshakable in their situation. That's just belligerence. Now perhaps as we read this, in your mind a name or two came to mind that might fit one or two or several of those descriptions. 
Or perhaps what comes to mind is the cultural narratives and pop culture stories filled with heroes and villains who look strikingly similar. Heroes and villains who are self-absorbed, self-obsessed, self-assured. There is no shortage of troublers like these in our world. You see, the world is at enmity with God, and so the world is at enmity with God's people. There's no shortage of trouble. There's no shortage of troublers. Truth number three, there is no way to avoid trouble. It's a sobering truth. But the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you will experience that no amount of insurance, no amount of therapy, no amount of carefulness or caution or planning or forethought or finances or information or education can eliminate trouble in your life. Think about it. If anyone could avoid trouble, it would have been David. He's at the top of the governmental hierarchy. He had everything and everyone necessary to make his life safe and secure in this world. And as a man after God's own heart, loved and appointed by God, he certainly had God on his side. So how could you improve on that spiritually? But David did not and could not avoid trouble. And so in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 9, we see a turn from general out there trouble to very specific in here trouble. David says, God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. That's an out there truth. And then he erupts in prayer. Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my affliction at the hands of those who hate me. You see, affliction and oppression in these two psalms come from the same root word. And my guess is that for you, in the midst of your trouble right now, your affliction, your trouble, often feels like oppression. There's no shortage of trouble. There's no shortage of troublers. There's no way to avoid trouble. But as if it could get any more painful, truth number four, you and I are part of the trouble. Too often we read Scripture and immediately place ourselves in the good guys camp. We identify with the good guys. But the reality is, as we read through the first section of Psalm 10 just a few moments ago, there were descriptions of or found in Psalm 10 that touches each one of our lives. The fact is, we often live as if we can wing it independently of God. 
we live blasphemously. And the reality is, in our thoughts, we live belligerently, excusing or defending our own troublemaking. But let's ask the question, who among us is so lacking in self-awareness that we don't believe we can routinely be self-absorbed and self-obsessed and self-assured and self-dependent? I regularly check each of these boxes in more ways than I would care to admit. So we who experience trouble are often the cause of trouble for others. And so we are part of the trouble. However, this message has not perfectly matched the tone of Psalm 9 and 10 to this point. Now certainly these psalms are filled with trouble and affliction and oppression and humiliation and terrible, terrible things. But notice how Psalm 9 begins. We started our service with it this morning. I will thank the Lord with all my heart. I will declare all your wondrous deeds. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name, Most High. And then go to the very last two verses or three verses of Psalm 10. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully, doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed, so that mere humans from the earth may terrify them no more. So in the midst of overwhelming trouble, David is praising God and he's confident in God. Why? Because truth number five, God has triumphed over trouble. And this is where the good news begins to shape this message because God has triumphed over trouble in at least two ways. First, God has triumphed on behalf of the troubled. On behalf of the troubled ones, God has triumphed over trouble. Notice Psalm 9 verses 3 through 4. When my enemies retreat, they stumble and perish before you, for you have upheld my just cause. You are seated on your throne as a righteous judge. Go down to verse 9. The Lord is a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge in times of trouble. Look at verses 11 and 12. Sing to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Proclaim his deeds among the nations. For the one who seeks an accounting for bloodshed, that's God, by the way, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the oppressed. Look at verse 14 of chapter 10 of Psalm 10. The helpless one entrusts himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. God has triumphed over trouble on behalf of those who are troubled. Second, 
God has triumphed over the troublers. Now, how in this psalm does God triumph over the ones causing trouble, the troublers? Well, the answer is simply this. He traps them in their own traps. He snares them in the snares that they have set for others. And this is one of the beautiful mystery of God's wisdom, beautiful mysteries of God's wisdom expressed in his divine judgment. God's justice is retributive justice. That is one of the glories of God's judgment. In other words, the punishment will fit the crime. The unjust will have their own crimes visited upon their heads. And it isn't a partial justice. It's a complete, not an incomplete justice. It's totally and perfectly just. So let's just see two examples of this in the psalm. Look at Psalm 9, verse 5. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked you have erased their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to eternal ruin. You have uprooted the cities and the very memory of them has perished. Now remember, the nations have set themselves up as all sovereign against God. And so God shows them to be not God. And how does God, the sovereign one, declare the nations to be not God? He eliminates them from the scene of world history. Retributive justice. The punishment matched the crime. The nations want to eliminate God, want to stand in his stead, want to sit on his throne. God eliminates the nations. Now, look at verses 15 and 16 of Psalm 9. The nations have fallen into the pit they made. Their foot is caught in the net they have concealed. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed justice, snaring the wicked by the work of their hands. God has triumphed over trouble on behalf of the troubled and over the troublers. But perhaps you're sitting here saying, Isaiah, this is all well and good for David. Like, I'm thrilled to death for the guy. Kudos to him. God's triumphed on his behalf. But my trouble still exists. Isaiah, in a few moments when you say, peace be to you, and we all respond, and also to you, and I walk out of here, I'm going to go sit with my trouble in the car, and then sit with it at lunch, and then sit with it today, and tomorrow, and this week, and the next. I'm happy for David, but what about me in my trouble? These are the right questions. Look with me again at verses 12 and 14 of Psalm 10. 
David, addressing God, says, But you yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your hands. The helpless one entrusts himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. Friends, do you hear God's word to you in these moments, August 7th of 2022? The Father has seen your trouble. He observes your grief. And he has taken matters into his own hands. This God of perfection, of glory, of beauty, of grace, of steadfast love, he took matters into his own hands by taking the crown off of his head and in inhabiting the womb of a young woman 2,000 years ago. You see, God experienced all of the trouble we human beings have ever experienced. Our Lord knows trouble. He lost his adopted earthly father. He was misunderstood by his family. He was forsaken by his friends. He was rejected by his people. He was unjustly accused by his countrymen. He was punished by his government. And he was crucified by his own. And in this case, he was not caught in his own snares. Nor did he fall into a pit that he had dug for others. No, the perfectly righteous one, Jesus, willingly walked into the trap. He stepped down into the pit so that we might be freed from it. He willingly jumped into the pit of God's wrath so that you and I might walk out. He allowed himself to be snared so that we might be saved. We, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ took our trouble and endured the payment for our troubling so that he might be resurrected from the grave and deliver us from trouble eternally. Now, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, then understand this. Don't be mistaken. Following Jesus is a way of difficulty and hardship and toil and trouble. Now, But Paul says, we do not give up. Even though our outer man is being destroyed, 
Our inner person is being renewed day by day for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an incomparably an incomparable eternal weight of glory. This is what God's promise God has promised. So the entrance to the way of Jesus with its promise of future glory with him, a removal of all trouble, the entrance to that way is to admit that you are both troubled by the brokenness of people around you and a sin-cursed world and that you create trouble by your own rebellion against God. And then to see in Jesus the refuge for oppression, a refuge for you in your trouble and as the source of change for you to turn from being a troubler to one who trusts. So friend, come to Jesus. He is the faithful king who will deliver the troubled, change troublers into worshipers, and then justly judge those who refuse to submit to his kingship. But he is calling, make no mistake, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, right now in these moments, by his word, through his spirit, he is calling you to follow him, to trust him, to turn from your sin and rebellion, the end thereof, which is death, and to turn to life and hope and faith in Jesus. Look at verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 9. The Lord is a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. So, for those of us who follow Jesus, where does this leave us in our trouble? What does it mean in our trouble to seek Jesus? Well, seeking Jesus flows from our deliverance from eternal trouble. Jesus has guaranteed our eternal deliverance, so in the here and now, to seek Jesus means we follow in the example of the scriptures and cry out for help to Jesus in prayer, just like David is doing here. And what is the end goal of that request? When we cry out in the midst of our pain and brokenness and the hurt and the affliction and the oppression and the humiliation, when we cry out, rise up, God, save me. What is the end goal of that request? Look at verse 13 of Psalm 9. Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my affliction at the hands of those who hate me. Lift me up from the gates of death. Doesn't that what trouble feels like often? The gates of death. But why? Why does David want deliverance? Verse 14. So that I may declare your praises. I will rejoice in your salvation within the gates of the daughters of Zion. So Jesus has delivered us eternally from the gates of death 
so that even though in moments we feel like we're at the gates of death, we can still declare His praise and rejoice in His salvation because our eternal trouble has been satisfied. It's been removed. It's been taken away. And in its place, God has given us His Son, Jesus, and the Spirit of Jesus within our hearts for us to turn and seek His help and refuge in trouble. So no matter how grave the current trouble you're experiencing, no matter how difficult the current situation, if you are a follower of Jesus, then we have this underlying foundation that deliverance will finally be demonstrated. And for that, eternal praise and worship to Jesus is only appropriate. And in the midst of our current troubles, we seek refuge in Him. We call out our idols as vain and worthless places to seek refuge. So where have you sought refuge this week from your trouble? Entertainment? Alcohol? Oh, they may dull our minds from the pain of the trouble we're experiencing, but they're not places of refuge. Sports may distract you from trouble temporarily, but it can't save you. Pornography, power, work, sex, drugs. All of these things for a time may actually cause the trouble to fade ever so slightly. But none of these are refuges. They cannot save your soul or comfort you in your grief. They are idols. But Jesus can. The author of Hebrews exhorts us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. But rather, we have one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. So friends, let's humble ourselves once again and boldly seek Jesus. This week, let's pursue him as if he truly is a refuge, the only refuge. And let's pursue him through his word and in prayer and in community. Faithful King Jesus will trouble the troublers and deliver the troubled. That day is assuredly coming. So let's praise him and seek him. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. 
His grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead us home. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to give us your word in which we see as if in a mirror flawed men and women at their lowest points, at their weakest points, in times of humiliation and oppression and distress and affliction, crying out in honesty communicating to you the the reality of their circumstances without trying to clean it up or varnish it and make it look respectable, but simply laying out reality before you in prayer, seeking your help. So God, in these moments, our hearts are open and naked before you. Father, see our trouble, our affliction, our hurt, and our pain. See the fears and the uncertainties. Feel and see the weakness and hear the cry of our hearts that you would meet us, you would see us, you would know us, and you would deliver us. Oh, Father, we thank you for the promise of your word that Jesus Christ is a Savior to the uttermost. Help us to trust Him. Help us to seek refuge in Him this week and not in our idols. And we pray this in His most worthy name. Amen.